the museum in front of us. Um, I'm really happy that Steve Watson, to my left, is, is with us. He's from the local party, but also from Power Switch, which I'm sure he'll say a few more words about uh, when he speaks. And also Roger Cray Osborne from the Cornwall Green Party, who's going to be underlining um, the kinds of solutions that we need to be out there advocating. Now, I'm not going to talk very long about climate change because you all know the issues I'm speaking very much to the converted, I'm sure. I suppose all I was just going to ponder on a little bit was about the fact of trying to understand why it is that when people can see how great the challenge of climate change is, then why we still are not having action. Because the kinds of responses that are needed for climate change are not rocket science. The issue with climate change is not that we don't know what to do about it. The issue is how we galvanise the political will and the political momentum to do something about it. And I've just been literally sort of lying awake at night, sad person that I am, thinking, why is it that when it's so blindingly obvious that there are so many win-wins, in a way, in terms of tackling climate change? I mean, you know, there's nothing sacrificial about energy efficiency, renewable energies, or the massive investment we need in public transport. Given that these are all very positive policies in themselves, what is it that is stopping governments and perhaps stopping the public from moving in this direction more, more, more quickly? And of course, we've just had a new report out just last week from the Tyndall Centre telling us that maybe you don't even have the 10-year window that the Exeter Conference told us about. You remember Tony Blair had this big conference in Exeter where he got together some of the world's best scientists and they said, if you don't put a policy framework in place in the next 10 years um, in order to deal with climate change, it's going to be one hell of a lot more difficult in the future. The Tyndall Centre has just collapsed that down to four years. So, so basically, this is enormously urgent. What we're seeing from the other parties, I think, is frankly criminally irresponsible. You've got the Lib Dems who, on the one hand, are now beginning to talk about green taxes, and yet if you see what they're doing up and down the country, their councillors are advocating yet more road building, more airport capacity expansion, and so forth. You've got the Conservatives who don't appear yet, and you don't have any real policies at all, but the image of, of David Cameron uh, cycling with his shoes in the car following behind him is one I think that stays in our collective memories, and frankly the Labour Party seems to have given up altogether. I mean, you know, under Tony Blair, greenhouse gas emissions have actually risen, not fallen. Uh, he's famous for having intervened in a big row between the Department for, for, for Trade and Industry and, and the Department for the Environment, and the row was about how many emissions British industry was going to be allowed to emit under the emissions trading system, and Blair intervened personally on the side of British business to say they should be allowed to emit more which is hardly commensurate with the global political leadership that he claims to be exercising on this subject. So I just wanted to think a few, uh, a few thoughts about how we communicate about climate change, given that the urgency is clear, the lack of action by the other parties is clear, the overarching need for action is, is, is so clear. And I suppose one thought that I had was perhaps we need to be very careful about terrifying the life out of people, because that can be quite disempowering. In the sense that, on the one hand, it's true that we have to paint a picture of a life under climate change. We have to tell it as we believe it will be. But we must never forget to also paint a picture about how a low-carbon future can be. Because otherwise, we leave people like rabbits in the headlights. And, you know, once you terrify the life out of people, it's quite a rational response to go and have a couple of beers down the pub. Because that seems to be the only kind of sensible thing to be doing about it. So I think we need to be careful about, about doing that. I think we need to maybe be talking a bit more about climate change as a threat to our national and international security. 
that we're not just talking about some changes to, to some environmental policies here, we're talking about a whole new way of organising our, our economics. Uh, and I think we have to be um, really clear that climate change is a much greater threat than international terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. Climate change is itself a weapon of mass destruction in many ways. And that therefore the action that we kind of need is commensurate to a, a threat of that kind. And it's very interesting to think about that. You imagine if, if the French were invading at Dover, you wouldn't have Tony Blair starting to hold some focus groups to discuss what to do about it. You know, you'd have an immediate response. It probably wouldn't be a response that we would like. But nonetheless, it would be a response predicated on the idea that this was a threat to national security. And I think it's, it's, it's a real problem that the threat of climate change isn't perceived in such an immediate way. Because it's complex, it's ambiguous, it's intergenerational. You know, there is the danger that we are like the famous frogs in, in the saucepan, you know, the story of putting a frog in a pan of boiling water and you'll be relieved to know it jumps out. If you put a frog in a pan of cold water and heat it very slowly, it doesn't notice because it's over time and it slowly boils to death unless you fish it out, which is really quick. So <clears throat> we are in danger of being the frogs. The government is in danger of being the frogs in the sense that because, although it's happening in geological terms, you know, like that, happening incredibly quickly. In human terms, it's taking a few months, it's taking a few years, it's a few years hence and it's really going to bite, and somehow that seems to be inhibiting our, our response. But I suppose that the last thing I really wanted to say was that I think it really is incumbent on all of us to be painting a more positive picture of this low-carbon future, to come back to that, that for as long as we go out there giving the impression of but what we're talking about, even indirectly, because we wouldn't deliberately go out and give this impression, but if it sounds like what we're talking about is shivering around a candle in a cave, then that isn't a particularly engaging prospect. So I think what we've got to go out there and say is, look, these policies are policies that we would want in and of themselves, irrespective of climate change, in the sense that, you know, having a really good, affordable, clean, efficient public transport system is something that we would want, that's a good thing. Having much better energy efficiency it's something that's good for our, for our homes, it's good for poorer people because it means that their homes are more likely to be insulated. Not depending on fossil fuels from Iraq is good for our national security. You know, we wouldn't be fighting so many uh, wars on places like Iraq. And maybe also controversially, we could look at some of the, well, not exactly controversially, in some sense it's controversial. we could look at some of the work that New Economics Foundation and others have been doing about happiness. You know, we're so obsessed as a society about more and more growth. Um, and, and, and sometimes climate change policies are deemed to be unacceptable because they might be a break on more and more economic growth. Well, I think we just have to meet that head on and say, well, wait a minute, you know, why are we so obsessed with a narrow indicator of gross national product growth as an indicator of whether or not the society is particularly happy or if there's a strong sense of well-being? Because on a whole range of different indicators, whether or not you're looking at crime or drug abuse or alcoholism or suicides or mental uh, lack of mental well-being, and all of those kinds of indicators. It's very clear that since at least 1970, you know, although our, our, our GNP, our gross national product, has been flying up like this, these other indicators are going down very, very rapidly. So growth is not delivering in terms of well-being, and growth isn't even delivering when it comes to poverty eradication. Of course, the, the key argument that's often used is, well, we need more and more global growth because that way we eradicate poverty. And again, the Economics Foundation have done a fantastic report that I commend to you called Growth Isn't Working. You can download it from their, from their website. And they basically said that for every hundred dollars, I think they did it in, and every hundred dollars of global growth, 
just 0.6 of a dollar, 60 cents, gets to the poorest people, to the people on less than a dollar a day. In other words, to add a dollar's income to people on the lowest level, you would need $166 of global production consumption to make the person at the lowest level $1 better off, which is an extraordinarily inefficient way of trying to make people who are very poor richer. We don't need the extra $166 of global production consumption. We need redistribution. We need to target measures at the poor and not assume that we need just more and more <coughs> global growth. And so I think if we could get some of those messages across to say, hey, this future that we're talking about could be a positive future in any case, a low-carbon future. And if we could remember as well that, you know, when we look at some of the great people in history, like Martin Luther King, we don't remember his nightmare, although I'm sure he had many of them, we remember his dream. And I think we've got to actually engage with people's dreams a bit better and paint this picture of a low-carbon future with a bit more detail and a bit more vigour and, and rigour and, 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 and brightness than we, than we have. Because I think one of the issues that we're dealing with is that sometimes we can come over as people just dealing with grey facts and figures and it doesn't reach people's hearts. We think that if we give somebody a leaflet, very, very closely typed, which has got so much to say, that if we give them that leaflet, then they'll read it and they'll change their lives. But, but people don't work like that. You know, we've got years and years of campaigning to demonstrate people don't work like that. And so I guess my, my, my final message would just be to try to engage a bit more with, with hearts as well as, as well as heads. I'm not quite sure how that segues into what Steve was going to say, probably not at all, but <laughs> we are now going to shift a bit and look a little bit more about the peak oil point in particular, because if there are very good reasons from a climate change perspective about why governments have to get away from their addiction to fossil fuels, then there are also very, very good reasons when it comes to looking at the whole issue of peak oil. Thank you, Carol. Right, uh, good evening. My name is Steve Watson. Uh, I've got my power switch hat on tonight, um, which is an organisation dedicated to raising awareness and discussion of the impending and permanent decline of our cheap oil and gas supply, and the consequences of which will affect every corner of our lives. Um, now, after what Caroline's just said, I feel as though I'm going to be a bit of the headlights here, the rabbits. Um, but I think, in, uh, in one sense, I'm... Some, it's easy to get the opinion that everybody knows stuff about people. It has gone up the agenda a lot since I first learned about it um, just over two years ago. It really has. It's now, you know, we've now got a four-part series on the BBC driven by oil, which is discussing these issues. But I don't want to assume that. So part of it, this is a necessarily brief overview, kind of a bit of a, uh, a picture painting where this is coming from. Hopefully, uh, the headlights will pass when we move over to Roger. <laughs> Uh, yes. So I'm going to sketch a picture of where we're currently headed from some of the people involved in the oil and gas industries and its observers. And if some of the names don't mean too much, then you can ask me afterwards for some more details. In order to extract and produce oil, it must first be discovered. Global oil discovery peaked in 1964 and has fallen ever since, and it therefore follows that production must also peak and fall. And those paying attention are concerned about current discovery rates. Matthew Simmons, a US investment banker, said, all the big deposits have been found and exploited. There aren't going to be any dramatic new discoveries, and the discovery trends have made this abundantly clear. In an article posted on the ExxonMobil Exploration Home webpage, their company president, John Thompson, stated, by 2015, we still need, we'll, we'll need to find, develop and produce a volume of new oil and gas that is equal to eight out of every 10 barrels being produced today, 
In addition, the cost associated with providing this additional oil and gas is expected to be considerably more than what the industry is now spending. Equally daunting is the fact that many of the most promising prospects are far from major markets, some in regions that lack even basic infrastructure. Others are in extreme climates, such as the Arctic, that present extraordinary technical <coughs> challenges. David O'Reilly, the chairman of the CEO, <coughs> chairman and CEO of the Chevron Corporation, said in 2005, one thing is clear, the era of easy oil is over. What we all do next will determine how well we meet the energy needs of the entire world in this century and beyond. Out of the world's 65 oil-producing countries, output in 54 of them has already peaked. Now, oil consumption is growing year on year at a rate of around 1.5 to 2%, and our demand for oil seems insatiable. It's currently running at 80 million barrels per day, which is 30 billion barrels per year, and climbing. Around 1980, the number of barrels consumed per year exceeded the number of barrels discovered first for the first uh, for the first time, and that gap is continuing to widen. And even if, by some miracle, oil production remains constant for the next 10 years, then we will have between 15 and 30 percent less oil than we need by the year 2014, as our demand continues to rise regardless. Think of rapidly industrialising India and China. Also, it's important to remember that peak oil is about flow rates as well, not just reserves. That is, somebody put it once, you can't go into a petrol station and say, fill her up with the reserves. You only have flow available from those reserves as delivered at the moment. And we're being told that there's a lack of refining capacity which is restricting global availability. That is just part of the issue. So, at what point does our ever-growing demand for oil exceed the planet's ability to supply the amounts we want cheaply? And the consequent price rises begin to affect our daily lives. So far, whenever we wanted more, it's been available, except during the previous political oil shocks, which curtailed supply, but we've never experienced a geological oil shock. Various people have tried to calculate the date of peak, but for reasons mentioned above, it's not easy. One uh, is by Chris Skrabowski, who was hoped to be here this evening, but sadly is unable to, who's done what are called these mega-project reports, which are on, he, he's the editor of Petroleum Review. Um, and he was interviewed by Julian Darley for Global Public Media in April 2005 discussing the report. And it's a little bit of what he said here. Julian Darley asked, can you explain the significance of your report? In other words, why do you do it? And he said, the reason is because this tells us clearly how future production flows are going to work. Even large onshore projects take three or four years from when you hear of them to production. And the faster project you can have on this side is maybe the reworking of a large oil field, perhaps in Saudi Arabia. <coughs> But even then, you're talking about two and a half years, so there's not really any surprises. So if you continuously update this, you get a good idea of the future flow of oil. And Julian Dyer said, this side of 2010, we can't really have any miracle new production coming on board then. And he said, no, not a magnitude that would really alter the outcome. That's to say, yes, people can scrabble around. They can put little extra wells here and there. There may be some small projects they conduct, but it won't really make a difference to the outcome. So in that sense, the die is pretty well cast, at least out to 2010 and maybe beyond that. And in conclusion, Julian Darley said, in the light of much evidence and in the light of your report, do you think that Ken Defy's suggestion of Thanksgiving 2005, he was a bit tongue chip when he said that, being the time of peak, is too bold in your opinion? And he said, no, that is entirely possible. We're now into, you know, a sort of unknown land. We haven't been in this situation before. I don't think we know quite how to analyse it. We're taking traditional, fairly conventional analysis. 
and we're saying, let's see what happens when we do this. And I suppose the rough answer we get from this year on is that it looks difficult to add it up comfortably. It certainly looks as though after about 2008, it really doesn't add up. It's not quite clear more than that that you can say. So, some other people have commented on this, um, just two more. Um, George Monbiot, who said, uh, We seem, in other words, to be in trouble. Either we lay our hands on every sort, available source of fossil fuel, in which case we fry the planet and civilization collapses, or we run out and civilization collapses. The only rational response to both the impending end of the oil age and the menace of global warming is to redesign our cities, our farming, and our lives. But this cannot happen without massive political pressure, and our problem is that no one ever rioted for austerity. People tend to take to the streets because they want more, not less. Given a choice between a new set of matching tableware and saving the planet, I suspect most people would choose the tableware. And finally there, um, a February 2005 report commissioned by the United States Department of Energy, uh, Energy's National Energy Technology Laboratory said, if the current trend, recent trends hold, there is little reason to expect that exploration success will dramatically improve in the future. The image is one of a world moving from a long period in which reserve additions were much greater than consumption to an era in which annual additions are falling increasingly short of annual consumption. This is but one of a number of trends that suggest the world is fast approaching the inevitable peaking of conventional world oil production. The report concluded, the world has never faced a problem like this. Without massive mitigation, more than a decade before the fact, the problem will be pervasive and not temporary. Previous energy transitions, wood to coal and coal to oil, were gradual and evolutionary. Oil peaking will be abrupt and revolutionary. So why might this be abrupt and revolutionary? Because a lot of things require oil for their manufacture. Your clothes, perhaps, computers, laminates, perspex, cars, cups, bottles, fridges, telephones, carpets, curtains, vacuum cleaners, seats, paint, CDs, toys, cassettes, kitchen sink, and more, about 500,000 more items. Because oil supplies energy for 90% of the world's transport. Because the world's current population is just over 6.5 billion, and before oil was discovered 150 years ago, it was 2 billion. Because the quote from Texas Agriculture magazine in October 2005 by the McLennan County Farm Bureau president said, Agriculture today is experiencing a major catastrophe not experienced since the dust bowl days of the Great Depression. Based on the expert economic projections, for the first time in decades, many US farmers cannot possibly cash flow a crop or crops for the year 2006. Bankers are saying no. Many of us will not be able to farm this year or the next. The doubling and tripling of fuel and petrochemical prices are the last link in a chain of bad economic events. Agriculture is in serious trouble. A friend of mine and long-time Central Texas farmer sums up the current crisis. It's a lot easier to do nothing for nothing than something for nothing. Why invest huge amounts, work from daylight to dark, and struggle for a profit when you know you have no chance? So in summary, <coughs> I believe our current way of life is unsustainable in many ways. And one of the main reasons why this is so is because of our sources of energy. We need massive support for conservation and drive to get our energy needs from renewables, and they both require massive investment right now. Even so, in a best-case scenario, we will have to accept big changes in the way we live, as none of the alternatives can supply us with enough energy to maintain anything like our current consumption levels. We need to radically change the way we get our food, the way we get to work, what we do for our work, 
the homes we live in, how we plan our families, and what we do for recreation. Put simply, a transition to these alternatives will require a complete overhaul of every aspect of modern industrial society. For me, today's overarching illusion is that technology always has the answer. One example, hybrid cars may sound like a solution. They still require oil to fuel and lubricate them, six gallons of oil to make each of their tyres, oil to create their interior plastics and more not to mention the 120,000 gallons of water required during each car's construction, not to mention all the oil required to maintain an infrastructure that allows a road-based transport system to have any use at all. Hybrid cars are not sustainable, they're just more efficient. They buy us time. But if we replace all our cars with hybrids, that means they don't need to be built. And maybe if we're lucky, retrofitted, which means more energy, raw materials, and so on. It's a vicious circle. It may be doom and gloom to imagine a lower tech world relying on local ecosystems for everyone's needs close to home, but such a course happens to adhere to scientific principle and historical record. Our future will be one in which there's less of a number of things we now take for granted, and less is the ultimate four-letter word. But I also believe that it can mean more of a number of things that are also important to a full and rich life. I feel we've reached a time when human greed and the unquestioning pursuit of our unsustainable way of life are beginning to collide with the limits of our home planet. Our profligate use of oil has allowed the enormous and rapid expanse of global industrialisation, a vastly increased world population, huge demands on the planet's resources, produced mountains of waste and caused a reduction in the numbers and lifespan of a number of other species. Peak oil is one of nature's warning signs that this must come to an end. So it's time for the human race to move from irresponsible adolescence to maturity. We cannot avoid what is coming, but we can choose how we handle it. Thank you for your time. Thanks very much for that. Let me hand over to Roger for... Right. Well, I need to move out of the headlights. <laughs> I don't wish to be a rabbit in the headlights. Are these microphones on? Good. Good evening, I'm Roger Cray Osborne, Roger CEO from the Cornwall Green Party, uh, and I'm here as a layperson as much as anything. Uh, thanks to Caroline and Steve, we've heard about climate change and peak oil, we've all heard these concepts before I'm sure. They are the terrible twins that face us, uh, and what I'm interested in doing is finding viable pathways into the future, and what I'm here to talk about is one particular uh, pathway that has been trialled in various parts. Incidentally, we've also heard today from the social enterprise uh, session and from the One Planet Living session that was immediately before this some other interesting ideas that relate very closely to what I'm saying on, on a different level. One of the things, as Carolyn said, that we're really bad about as a culture and as a green movement in particular is coming up with clear, positive visions of what life will be like in a world that is off oil. How will it look? How will the future look? And what, what it looks like, what we think it will look like, will shape our experience of it and shape our responses to it. If you ask people what life will be like when petrol is £4 a litre, when their personal carbon quota is a quarter of what it is today, and we're only talking four or five years' time away, their first response is invariably to think of all the things they'll no longer be able to have. It's negative. I won't be able to have a foreign holiday. I won't be able to drive a personal car. Most people don't even begin to think beyond that to the questions of how it will affect their food supplies, 
how it will affect the availability of common household goods how, that are made in China, medicines, let alone have a positive vision of how things could actually be better. Thus, we have no incentive to change our ways. We only have a threat hanging over us. So one of the first things that we have to do is work with people to help them create a desirable vision of the future, a desirable vision of how things could be. Once we have that, we can then work out the steps that will take us from here to there, the things that we need to do. And if that vision is something that people actually want and believe in, they will collectively move mountains to get there. And that is what we need to do. The sooner we act in response to a perceived threat, the easier it is to to achieve consensus and to implement transformative change, which is what we're talking about. We need to transform the way we live. We also know that it's far easier to make changes in a smaller unit. I can just choose to come here by train instead of driving, and no one else need be involved in that decision. You may have seen BBC Newsnight's ethical man making personal changes in his life. Even given the incentive of his job, it's not been simple. In his last report, he claimed to have achieved around about a 30% reduction in personal carbon footprint. This was actually largely done by the expedient of not taking his family on a long-haul holiday this year. Our target is 70% plus in a short time scale. As you move up the scale through family decisions to community decisions, regional decisions, national and international decisions, it becomes progressively harder and more time-consuming to achieve consensus on, how to, on implementing transformative change. At the national level, it takes five years minimum to turn a government round. Even with fast tracking, it's difficult to imagine how a one-gigawatt new power plant, whether it's nuclear or wind, could be get through planning, and built in less than five years. On the other hand, in my village, we could easily agree to, agree to the need, identify the site, raise the funds, and erect a community wind turbine, allowing us to go off-grid much of the time. It's a question of scale, and it's a question of where you can act most effectively. It's at the community level that there's real potential for effective action and the opportunity to create the necessary changes from the bottom up. This is a whole other dimension of action that we've been overlooking. We've tended to concentrate on the personal things we have to do, give up my car, ride, by, ride my bike, and the political things we've ha- we have to do at a large scale, elect a green government. At this point, I want to tell you a short story about something that happened two years ago in a small town in Southern Ireland. Some of you may know about this already, and it's really important. Kinsale Further Education College had been running a course on permaculture design that was taught by Rob Hopkins. If you don't know what permaculture is, then I do recommend you find out. Uh, The headline description is, it's a toolkit for the design and creation of sustainable human settlements. Rob quite recently became aware of the problem of peak oil through a meeting with Dr. Colin Campbell, one of the peak oil gurus, uh, who happened to live locally. As a result of this awareness, Rob showed his students, his second-year students, the film End of Suburbia. And the following day, he followed this up by inviting Colin Campbell to give a talk to the students on the peak oil issue. This was a real eye-opener for both the students and Rob. A week later, one of his colleagues commented to me, what on earth did you do to your students last week? They looked ill for the rest of the week. It had been a complete severe shaking, rabbits in the headlights, the implications of what they'd been told and what they'd understood. 
Since permaculture design is in part about a systems approach to design and operation of communities, they decided to incorporate their new awareness into their work. The approach they took was to start by imagining what day-to-day life might be like in Kinsale, in their community, in a world with much less easy energy. I think they took the figure 30% of the availability of fossil fuels in 2021. They quickly realised that the implications touched every aspect of life, but they also found that they could begin to envisage ways in which the community would continue to function, and thus to identify certain actions that could be taken now and over the succeeding years to make life better in the future. They started to take ownership and control over their own destiny, and this was really empowering at a local level. Public meetings were held and well attended. Ideas were brainstormed and researched, mind maps of issues and possible solutions created, and crucially, the community and the community leaders got involved. This is about much more than just deciding as individuals to replace your car with your bicycle. The topics covered range from food, youth, education, housing, livelihoods, local economy, transport, waste, and so on. For each of these, they asked the question, what's the situation at the moment? What would it be like in 2021 if we don't have easy access to fossil fuels? And what's the roadmap of actions that we can take between now and then to make it better? So it was a practical exercise in designing the future, built on a vision of the future that they controlled and owned. The result was the Kinsale Energy Descent Action Plan. This was published in in 2004, It's not a completed work. It's very much a living document that successive people in Kinsale will develop and it will evolve. But the community now has ownership of its vision of a low-energy future and is working out how to get there. For each of those topics I mentioned, they start, it's divided into sections. They talk about housing. They talk about education. They describe, there's a paragraph describing the present situation. There's a paragraph describing the vision of the future. And then there's a set of practical steps What do we need to do in 2006? What should we do in 2009? Where should we be in 2012, 2015? Just short bullet points, but setting out a roadmap and giving them a template, a plan of action for the future. Since its publication, it's caused a little bit of a stir. It's been picked up in various places. You can download a copy from the website Transition Culture, all one word, transitionculture.org. It's well worth having a look at. You need to uh, fill in uh, your details in order to download it because they want to see who's downloading it. Several communities have picked it up as a template for action. Rob himself has now moved to uh, Totnes in South Devon, quite close to my patch, where they've already launched uh, Transition Town Totnes to develop a descent action plan for their town. And you can follow the progress of Transition Town Totnes on their website. And you can use the ideas that are being generated there to start your own action in your own community. So what sort of things are included in the plan? The most important thing is that it's the community itself that has ownership. I can't stress that enough. There's no way that it will succeed if someone comes from as an outside expert and tells the community what to do. The community has to share the vision in the deep sense of it being something that they have created collectively. So there's no template for how to do this. There are just ideas of how to proceed and the way Kinsale have done it and the way Totnes are doing it and the way other communities are starting to do it is something that you should pick up on and adapt to your local circumstances. Permaculture takes the production of food as one of its core themes and this is certainly something that's going to have to be transformed in every community transitioning to a low-energy future. 
Historically, between 60 and 70% of the population were directly involved in food production. In the age of oil, this has fallen to less than 6%, even in rural areas like Ireland and Cornwall. Studies of the energy input to food production suggest that to be truly sustainable, food needs to be produced within 20 miles of where it's consumed. The good news is, when you start to look at it, even in our densest cities, we actually have quite a lot of open space which could be transformed into productive areas. Just think of that next time you look at the, the superstore car park. Take away the cars, put cracks in the concrete, build raised beds, to, and you've got an area that you can grow food to sustain the local community. You've also got a redundant building in the middle of it that could partially, partially be turned into a greenhouse, partially be used as a store, and partially be used as a market. We actually do need to conserve some of these spaces that have been taken over by the cancerous culture to be used in the future as resources. In the same way, green building, green building methods that rely on components that are imported from Denmark or Germany are not sustainable. Have a look at the resources that are local to you. What sort of dwelling could you build with materials that you could bring from within a day's cart ride? If you look at the old houses in your area, they'll probably reflect local character precisely because they're built with local materials. Of course, housing lasts a long time, typically in excess of 50 years, so we'll not be replacing existing housing with zero-emission developments anytime soon. The, the Z developments that we heard about in the OPL uh, presentation are fantastic, but it's going to take hundreds of years before we've replaced our housing stock with zero-emission housing. So how can your community retrofit its existing housing stock with energy improvements? There are tremendous synergies and cost savings from acting together as a community to upgrade the housing. Where should your schools and shops and facilities be located when most people are going to walk or cycle to them? This should inform local planning strategies and zoning. If you have the opportunity to do some civic planting of trees or in a park or street, what species would be most appropriate to find there in 10 years' time? What is the point of an ornamental cherry? <laughs> what energy resources do you have locally? What are the potential sites for a wind turbine in your area? Which streets have good south-facing roofs? What are the flows like in the local river? If there was once a water mill there, there probably could be again. Find out how you can form a CEC, a community energy company, and run your own generating capacity and keep the revenue in your local community. At the moment, you pay your electricity bills and the money goes straight out of your community, much of it out of the country. With a CEC, you get to keep all of that in your local area. And so you start to build up a picture of how your local community might look and operate in 20 years' time, given no more than the technologies that are available today and a low-energy environment. It's important to be realistic. The majority of the population are not going to go out and start growing their own food today. They need a massive crisis to force them to do so. However, what we can do is put in place the infrastructure that will be needed. We can start seed clubs. We can keep some urban land out of development. We need to preserve and pass down skills. There are actually very few people left, and they're getting quite old, who know how to operate a farm or market garden without mechanised tools and without uh, fertiliser inputs or imported energy. We desperately need to capture those skills... We need to capture that information from our old people. Then when the crisis comes and people turn to us and say, but where will we get our fruit? 
we can say from that five-acre orchard that we planted over the, that we planted over there seven years ago. That's the sort of thing that an energy descent action plan puts in place. It provides a template for community planning to face the challenges ahead. It's not the only solution. We still need individual ethical man actions. We still need green politicians at every level to drive forward those much harder and wider consensus building moves that we need. But we do need this as an essential and empowering component of our future. In conclusion, we do have a problem. We know that the pre-oil world struggled to support a population of two and a half billion on a surf-slave-based system. We also know that in the last 150 years, we've used about half the available oil and trebled the population. We further know that in doing so, we have started dangerous climate change and that continuing to burn the, burn the oil at today's rates will make the planet uninhabitable within our own lifetime. This problem will be fixed. We can either let nature and Gaia take her course or we can act to try and solve the problem ourselves. What we do know is that nature's solution will not be favourable to civilization. Our actions need to be multi-layered. We have to change our personal lifestyle. We have to take control of our community's direction. We have to act nationally. And we have to be part of a global solution. Every one of these levels of action is necessary. Altogether, they just might be sufficient to take us on a creative descent pathway to an advanced post-oil civilization. I'd like to finally remind you of the words of Professor Sir Fred Hoyle, the astronomer, spoken in 1964. He observed that on any given planet, the development of an advanced civilization is a one-shot affair. We can use the oil age as a leg up to, that we need to achieve a sustainable, advanced future civilization of Earth stewardship, or we can blow it all and fall back to serfdom and savagery. It's your choice. I know which future I want. Thank you.